This is Bob Rourke with Business Leaders Podcast, and today we have Dr. Sean Cup. He's a PhD. He's the Professor of Force Sustainment and Management at the Army Command and General Staff College. Sean, thank you so much for taking time to be on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. We're going to do a little bit of something different today. We're going to talk about COVID-19. We're in the midst of it right now, and uh, Sean has a great deal of expertise and thoughts on it, so I thought I would turn it over to Sean, and I thought we'd start a little bit, and when we talked about it, is kind of compare and contrast what we've had before and some of the history and some of your thoughts about that. So there's been about 13 different pandemics since the 1700s. The last major one that was worldwide was the 1918-1919 Spanish flu that happened during the middle of World War One. It actually came from Kansas, where I'm at, went into Camp Funston, spread around the world. Historically, it was called the Spanish flu because Spain was neutral during that fight and was the only ones that would report on it. That has some significance today because China and some other news agencies are trying to blame people for what happened. And we're in the midst of somewhat weaponizing information about blame, who did what, who started this. That will, we can come back to that later, but that is something significant that's going to happen in the outcome three to five years from now. We've also had a pandemic. Hong Kong, and another flu in the late 50s and late 60s. And the most recent pandemic was another H1N1 designated with swine, which was in 2009. Each of these viruses, at least coronaviruses, you have to remember a few things about them. They don't need oxygen to live. They don't produce any products. They don't have to have any kind of uh, gender to reproduce. They are RNA-based, not DNA-based. So when a water droplet that has COVID or SARS version 2 in it gets into your hands or you rub what we would call fomites, like a computer screen or a door handle or bag, you touch your mouth. That's why we talk about washing your hands all the time. You wash your hands, you get rid of the virus. It's only way to reproduce is to get into your lungs and change the RNA, DNA of the next cell beside it. And that's how it reproduced. And when you cough, sneeze, then you expel that out. That's why we have the 10 foot social distance requirements that have been put out by the CDC. And that's how you keep the virus from moving from person to person. The other part of the science piece is the R not. So how infectious is it? For example, if somebody had measles walks into a school, the R ought is about 12 to 18. That means it's very infectious, but has a very low mortality rate. As opposed to the flu, the various flus that we get vaccinated for, that has an R R ought value of one to two. So if you walked into a room maybe one or two people out of 10 would get the infection versus COVID-19 infection at rate is a R not of three to five. So if you walk into a room, 30% or 40% of the people in the room that are exposed to it will get it. 
some unique things about COVID-19 is you can be asymptomatic and spread the disease. You can have no symptoms and spread the disease, which is different than 2002, 2003, when we had the SARS, which is the closest coronavirus that this is to. It's about 80% match RNA-based. The way we controlled it was Toronto, China, the U.S. put temperature sensors in the airports, and you had to have a temperature to actually be symptomatic and spread it so they could control it a lot easier that way. Suffice to say, current rates are different in different countries as far as mortality. We have rates of around 4% if you look at the entire globe that John Hopkins has on their GIS database dashboard. They're also keeping it by country. In Italy, it's around 8%. In Iran, it's around 6.5%. Whereas a normal flu season can be anywhere from 0.1 to 0.05. So it's, it's a lot more deadly than what we would call a normal flu season. You know, when you think about that, you know, in a normal flu season here, if I have the flu and it's bad enough, I go to a local emergency care or whatever. Do you think that's influenced because they know what to do with the existing flus that we've had available and they know how to treat and manage the symptoms? Well, that's one. But the other thing that is dramatically different about this is since the 40s, we've had a vaccine for flu. So you get a vaccine that's a cocktail of the last two or three flu seasons and you have some immunity to it. Also, if you're like, yourself or myself, and you live through several of these pandemics, you have a herd immunity to the flu. And Uh, for the folks that don't know what, I mean, herd immunity, let's dig into that just a little. So if you're alive during a pandemic and you survive it, like the people that survived 1918 Spanish flu, their body built up immunity, antibodies to that virus. So when in the 50s, the next pandemic happened, they were much better able to fight off that virus versus being exposed to that virus for the first time in a pandemic form. So if you live through several of these, and that's the part that the science has not come back and yet said, once you have COVID-19, are you immune to it? We don't know. That's why the document that came out a couple of days ago that was published by the Imperial College in the UK about non-pharmaceutical interventions, they're talking about an 18-month period of time with waves of illness. And the reason they're talking that is because they don't know if you're immune to the virus once you've had it. There's a lot of science that has to go into that. We're worried about now trying to come up with treatments because you don't really prevent the virus unless you come up with a vaccine. So we have treatments which can be various drugs, RNA-based drugs. That's why things like if you have underlying illnesses, what we call comorbidity, hypertension, diabetes, cancer, a compromised immune system, you have a higher risk of actually dying from the disease because that's the people that are affected the most with this virus. That being said, This 18-month planning window is because we don't know if you're immune once you get it. So China today, the 19th of March, just said they stopped having community spread person-to-person of the virus. So their curve is supposedly going to stop 
going up and flatten. Well, that means everybody in Hubei province eventually is going to start going back to school, back to work. Well, if they didn't catch the virus, they can catch it again. If they caught the virus, we don't know if they can catch it again. So this may spike again. It took us two years, but it took us about six months to get the SARS genome up on the web in 2002, 2003. It took us one day to get the genome for COVID-19 up on the web. It took us two years to get a vaccine. Today, I heard we are already giving vaccination and some trials to people in Washington State because they're so far along in the progression of disease, we're giving them the opportunity to take this trial vaccine to see if it'll help. So the curve that we are looking at is the curve of how fast can we get, not necessarily preventatives, but treatments, various drugs that we're doing, but also how do we get a vaccine that we can start giving people? I think the demographics across the globe, over 60, you're at risk. If you're over 80, you're three times at risk. If you have comorbidity or underlying health conditions, you have a much greater risk no matter how old you are. So like the 2009 pandemic, there are certain demographics that that are more at risk than everybody else. For example, go back to 1918. The the people that died were from 18 to 44-year-olds. They had the highest death rate. But 44-year-old in those days was really old. Correct. But the the 18 to 44-year-olds were the ones that did all the work. Yeah. But we were a 50% agrarian-based economy, mm-hmm. 50% agrarian-based society. And that's what just really slowed down productivity, slowed down a lot of business because we didn't have anybody to do the work. There was a mm-hmm. bunch of young people left and a whole bunch of older people left. But the people that were the two generations that did all the work were almost were severely affected. Mm-hmm. You know, as, as you think about the Spanish flu experience and now, again, societal differences, age and typical, how long you lived, the lifespan was different. We're now way past being an, an agrarian society. I would Correct. say that we're more of a service-based, high-tech, somewhat manufacturing society now. Correct. So from that perspective, what do you think the compare contrast between potential supply chain interruption is from then to now? The biggest thing then was food. A farmer fed between 18 to 20 people. Now we have production agriculture is only about one and a half percent of the population. However, it's about 17% of the GDP. A farmer feeds between 120 to 140 people. So it's vastly different. Well, why? Because of technology, because of research, because of land grant universities that were set up in the post reconstruction that were set up to do research after reconstruction, those all began to bloom after the twenties and thirties, as far as being able to produce more food with less people with more mechanization. Now we have even more people that grow even more food than we did back in 1918. So what does that mean to business next year? That means that tariffs are going to probably double or triple with some nations like China, but they're going to pay it because they need soybeans. 
they also had a devastating swine coronavirus that impacted large portions of their swine population that they've started importing more and more from us and from other countries. But what I see us going towards is more self-sufficiency, more industry that is going to be for Americans so we don't have supply chain issues with pharmaceuticals, with ventilators, with N95 masks, with all the equipment that we're going to find out we don't have enough of or we can't distribute fast enough. The days of civil service, defense civil service, when we had post-World War II where we had large food stockages and water and things set up for the whole, you know, whatever would happen with nuclear war, I can see us going back towards that because people, once this goes through the population, whether it's one wave or two waves, people are going to be more dependent to be self-sufficient to themselves. What does that mean to a business owner? Well, that means some things are going to fundamentally change in the production and manufacturing sectors. Some things are going to fundamentally change in the agriculture sector. You, you know, in the production side, remember the entire theory that was talked about just-in-time inventory, right? And you have right. somebody make this widget and somebody make the red widget, and they're right. all theoretically supposed to trickle in here right at the right time, and then we can do that. You think that's going to be dissipated? That, that, so I'm a Desert Storm veteran, so I believe in the just-in-case. So the just-in-case is we, the, the Iron Mountains had a purpose. In the military, if we look at the military or we look at the military support to civil authorities, which is a niche area that I'm quite familiar with, which we are working in right now, the hospitals, the ships, the equipment, the doctors, all that that we're expanding, not only from the military side, but also the fourth pillar of VA is to help support the nation in this time of need. You're all, you're talking about logistics and it's not just in time, it's just in case. Well, where do we find more ventilators? Where do we find more hospital beds? Where do we find more oxygen? Where do we find more healthcare workers? Where do we find more capacity to treat these patients that are going to be, when you start talking about mortality rates, there's a number of those people that get sick that if they have a ventilator or if they have oxygen or if they have medical care, they will survive. But as we see in Italy and probably also in Iran, they have less capacity. They have less capability. So a lot of those people, and it's going to be reflected in our mortality rate, how many of those people there, if they got sick here, would survive? You know, that'll be interesting on the data skew. I wonder, you know, there's the Belt and Road Initiative where there's supposed to be the railroad from China into Europe. And you look at the incidences of outbreaks and concentrations of outbreaks along the Belt and Road event. And, right. and I think about here, we come up, there's some discussion you and I talked about before we started recording on, was it chloroquine? Is that right? Hydrochloroquine? Yeah, hydrochloroquine. And they're talking about that has some level of efficacy, I think, in treating the symptoms at least. Correct. And that's what you're doing. You're treating the symptoms. You're trying to make the body as comfortable as possible so that you can intake oxygen, exhale carbon dioxide, you can still do metabolics, you can still breathe, and you can survive the virus's attack on your body. Because a lot of people, and that's why people with 
various health conditions are more susceptible to the disease because simple things like breathing are incredibly hard, especially with this virus, based on what they said, what I've seen in symptoms. Breathing, it's like breathing underwater because it gets so labored, uh, as opposed to a regular flu, which would be headaches, body aches, other things that may be on may happen to you as far as symptoms go. Yeah, and before the, today's chat, I saw where Bayer, they're going to donate, I don't remember if it was $2 million or $3 million, um, basically a chloroquine derivative uh, that right. they were going to make available. So the stuff is not like it's, it's, it's well known. It's been around for 70 years, as I understand it. What is an anti-malarial? It is an anti-malarial. There's a, there's a group of anti-malarials, and it's one of the ones. And if you look at some of the nations that have COVID-19 that have had malaria, they have less incidence of COVID. And that's where they're coming up with, hey, this might have some efficacy for everybody that gets COVID-19. I think about the, the business owner out there that's you know, dealing currently. For the business owners and so on, when we're all past all this and we have some idea and you know, whether the, you know, there's a vaccine or not, we'll be post this and we're not all going to die as many are kind of running around being emotional about. What do you think you're going to see societally or business world that are going to change us? That's going to happen. I think you're going to have even more social media contact rather than a concert. You're going to have more social media streaming services rather than going to a theater. You're going to have communications just like we're doing right now that are going to become happenstance. I mean, it's going to be like getting up in the morning and shaving. It's going to be what you do every day. Telework will not be some strange, ubiquitous kind of concept that only people that do hedge funds or whatever work that way. It's going to be more businesses are going to be that way. I think it may cause some fundamental shifts in the way we operate. Like you said, we've come from a manufacturing industrial age to a service to now an information age, it may go back to a service age and the service is going to be different. For example, small business owners like restaurants, a lot of them are going to go out of business. Some of them will fundamentally change the way they do business and it'll be kind of like the Airbnb model where you order food and it shows up instead of you going out. We already eat about... 30 to 40% of our meals out. One of the other things that's come out in the last six or seven years is that we waste about 40% of our food. Mm -hmm. Why? Because we want perfect apples. We want perfect pears. We want perfect. We want to go to the store and get strawberries every month of the year. I think less of that will happen and we'll get more groceries via you call and get your weekly kind of like in Europe. When I was in Europe, you get you had a refrigerator that would carry two to three days worth of food, not the giant refrigerators and freezers we have in the U.S. that we carry weeks of food in. It may fundamentally change the way houses are built because of how cabinets and kitchens are, are made. Do we cook or do we eat out? Do we bring in? Are we going to be more self-sufficient? I don't think that you would have to go through a whole tool and generation 
And I don't know if this generation will be impacted enough where this fundamentally shifts their values and their desires back to an earlier age where you grow your food or you grow a portion of your food like what my great-grandparents grew up with after the Spanish flu and into the Depression. I don't know if it's going to fundamentally shift that, but I think it will shift some of the service industry. It's going to, serve, it's going to shift some of the streaming industry. I think some of the agriculture, I've stated for decades that agriculture is a strategic national security asset. It is something we take for granted because too few people are employed, well, in the production part of it. And everybody talks about paying farmers not to grow food, people don't understand the economics of agriculture, that it's an inelastic, not an elastic economic supply and demand. People don't understand what that means because you can only have one time to grow an item versus you can start and stop an assembly line a number of times. There's a whole bunch of other. Well, the only thing that's really helped us agriculturally is we've got the chilies of the world that are able to take and produce in uh, in their summer, which is our winter. And we have freight that brings it in just in time effectively. Correct. And I can see us doing more indoor, more hydroponics, more mm self-sufficient where we're not importing. We're going to grow more of our own food. Does that mean we shut down the borders? I don't know. Does that mean that, because I can tell you back in 97, there was a FMD foot and mouth disease outbreak in Taiwan and Taiwan was just a giant pig farm. If you didn't know that it had 8 million pigs, they were the local source of pork for the Pacific Rim. They've never came back from that. Yeah. Because they had to destroy all the animals. Uh, yeah, because it's hard to breed that many animals if you don't have a breeding stock to start with. I mean, it's just real large numbers. And and things like we're one of the fresh beef producers that's not foot and mouth disease vaccinated in the world. I think we're going to take some of those things and we're going to apply them and leverage them. But I also think we're going to we're going to condense and become more self-sufficient in a lot of areas, agriculture being one of them. But I think the service industry and I think streaming services and I think where you put your money and how you, things, you know, I've already heard, we're going to stop people from buying up, when I say people like China, buying up industry, like they bought Smithfield. Well, uh, they also bought Syngenta. Right. And if, if you go out in the Midwest, there's large tracts of land that are inside of, uh, fund purchases that are made by large outside interest groups. And that's, that's where some of the net value of farmland is generated by how people have introduced, well, a foreigner can put inject more money and use this as a hedge against inflation or a hedge against mm-hmm. the markets. And some of that, I think, may go away based on the fact that we may become more isolated as a nation because we want to keep ourselves from being attacked or influenced by another pandemic. Because a lot of people have said this is a 100-year pandemic. It seems like the 100-year happens every 10 years. Right. (laughs) And I don't think that's true. I think this is a, a new virus. It's a novel virus. And I don't think that that's going to change. I think that may happen again and again. And once we live through this six or nine months or however long it's going to take, I think some fundamental political and regulatory changes are going to happen that may or may not be involved with the election, but I think they will be involved with 
the people of the nation saying, we want to have travel, but we don't want to have all the risk of the travel. We want to be able to go on a cruise ship, but we don't want to have the risk of going on a cruise ship. We want to have food, but we don't want to have shortages. Those kinds of things, I think, are going to change in the do you future. Think, do you think the educational curriculum for children is going to change based on this? I think it already started changing. I think there's a, you know, I'm the youngest in the baby boomer generation or one of the youngest. And I think that I came through vocational education. That's what my bachelor's and master's is in. And I think that that's, we've lost. I mean, there's too many trades that do not have people involved because we went the information route. We went, Mm -hmm. if you're a code head, a wire head, whatever, that's where you're That's in cyber. That's where you need to go. Well, there's a whole lot of tradesmen that are required because all of us are going to retire and there's not going to be enough people to Mm -hmm. fill us back in. There's too many plumbers, electricians, draftsmen, toolmakers. And I think that may have some impact in the future that Mm -hmm. this may cause us to go back. Vocational education may have a comeback of some sorts in some areas just because we want to become more self-sufficient. We want to be able to do what we need to do without outsourcing everything. I do you think uh, offshore manufacturing is going to repatriate? I think some of it will, but mm-hmm. I don't know. I, yeah. I don't know. It depends on what we need. I mean, this may be significant enough that medical equipment and medical supplies and medical protective equipment may come as a premium and maybe we'll discover, hey, we need to have this on hand. We need to have stockpiles on hand, and maybe some of that may come back. I, I don't know about the rest. I'm not you know, sure. you wonder if you have just-in-time 3D printing. You know, there was a valve story somewhere on, on uh, ventilator right. machines. They were short. They took the 3D printer and printed them on site. Now, I don't know about intellectual property rules, but they sort of just went around that and did their thing. <laughs> they were trying to get sued, I think. that Yeah. Like, yeah. Because the manufacturer said it was copyrighted or patented process or some craziness. And I think, I don't know how all expanding the defense act that the president signed is going to have on industry, Mm -hmm. but I think it's going to have some impact on industry. Maybe it'll have some impact in production, in the production areas of the industry sector. Some of the things that we need that we don't have enough of that may provide seed money or may provide grants or it may provide the ability to provide jobs and production of those things. I don't know what they are. Yeah. You know, as we look across the country and trying to ramp up in the medical world, we have the dock in the boxes and then we have the major groups that own the hospital chains and so on and some for profit and others. In your opinion, what do you think is going to happen to the medical community or system in the country after this? I can tell you that from my hometown back in Virginia, one of those companies bought the local hospital, and it has been running less and less effective since Mm -hmm. then. And I think this may show that we don't need that. We need them to be not being run by a equity producing company that's trying to kind of like the online education field where we have people selling shares of whatever company that runs the three or four or five different major online degree programs and they're on their stock is being traded online Mm -hmm. and some of those have gone out of business. I think more of them will come about, but it's the same thing as, as what has happened in, in some of the financial 
industry 12 years ago is some of those will go away. Uh, mm-hmm. I think healthcare, HMOs, massive corporations, they're either going to go under or the local community is going to have such scrutiny on their practices, whether they're valid or not. I think this may show how good or not good some of those medical facilities are being run. Some of that may go away. I don't, but I think more of it's going to be local. I think this is going to be just like politics. It's all local. I think more and more people are going to look at where are their goods and services at my house in my local community. And they may be some opportunity in urban centers that are not serviced the way they should be with medical facilities. And telemedicine is really coming on in this crisis. Yes. And the directly opposite category is all the rural. You have so many rural uh, hospitals that have been shutting down. I mean, there's, yeah. there's three or four that here in the local community that stopped having 24-hour surgery care in the last two or three years yep. just because they couldn't do it. It was not profitable and Makes whatever. You wonder. No, it makes you wonder if they're going to ramp up the quantity of physicians that are coming out. And, you yeah. know, you wonder if you could have physicians like a civil service physicians corps. I don't know. Yeah. I don't see that happening in the short term. Maybe it'll come out in the long term, but I, yeah. it just takes so long to make one. <laughs> it's like special forces. I mean, you just right. can't take and print a special forces guy. Right. Exactly. And we tried doing that back in, uh, about 06, 07, 08, we had a program where we had infantry soldiers come in. They were 11 x-rays. They go through basic AIT, airborne school, and go to the Q course. And that's because we were so short, special forces soldiers. And the washout rate was horrendous. I mean, it yeah, it does not work. It, it, those are grown. They're not printed. We've talked about many things. You know, and we circling back to the pandemic frequency, do you have any thoughts on why we're seeing this kind of repetitive frequency of pandemics? Is it travel or is it conditional? It's a little bit of both, but it's also a third piece, which is where do these things come from? They come from bats, cats, and camels. And those are the reservoirs for various coronaviruses, just like flu is indigenous to the gullet of Asian birds. There's an Asian bird that has H3N5 in its gullet somewhere, and somebody has to pick it up and handle it to get that version Mm -hmm. of the flu. And then based upon how it morphs or doesn't morph, can that flu go via human transmission, community spread? You know, how does it work? But I think travel if you go if you look at all the pandemics and even back into the bubonic plague it was travel that caused that it had nothing to do with people not being able to to survive it was about ships going from one place to another just like planes do now mm-hmm. with just incredible ease and you can see how fast you know somebody from somewhere else touches something on a plane and you get on that plane and then you move somewhere else. That's just the way biology is. It only wants to survive, just like the rest of us. And and the way it does is very unique. We carry it around. And because we travel so much now, that makes it almost impossible to say, okay, for every virus there is, we got a way to shut it down. And especially for this one, unlike SARS, you don't have to have a temperature to spread it. And that's why we were able to control SARS to the extent we were. We don't have a vaccine for this. Once we get a vaccine for it, 
it won't be an issue or won't be as big an issue, but then something else will because something else, some other, the other thing to circle back to the R ought infectability and mortality, those two rubrics measure every kind of disease. So for example, Ebola, it's a 40 to 60% mortality rate. It has a R ought value of five or six, but the problem is it burns itself out before it can be transmitted so far. That's why mm-hmm. so many people can't get it as opposed to influenza or this virus, not as many people die so they can spread it on mm-hmm. and on and on. They just keep going. They Correct. don't die. Yeah. You know, we've talked about the R out or not ratio. So let's say that we have a fairly good data set. We sort of understand the mortality ratio depending on your age segmentation and comorbidity issues or whatever. And right. then, we have an advent of a series of drugs that manage the symptoms well. I suppose that will affect the R not, or is it R ought? R ought. It won't affect the R ought because it's still spread. It'll affect the mortality rate because mm-hmm. some of that treatment for the virus will be such that those people will live instead mm-hmm. of not being able to be treated because that plus oxygen plus a ventilator those are three components for people especially to have comorbidities especially people with age that's the only way they do survive younger people survive because they have better immune systems they have usually healthier lifestyles and their body is not beaten down by 60 or 70 years of life of living through some of the things we live the wear through. and tear yeah the mileage yes you know, when, when you're talking to other folks out and you've been doing a fair amount of speaking, I think, on this topic recently, what are the things that you hear most from either the audience that's listening or the government officials that you're talking with? What are they worried about? I would suggest the students that we deal with are worried about transmission, just the uncertainty. We just had a couple cases that became positive in our county in Kansas. So that brings it closer to home. That So everybody's a lot more antsy, a lot more anxious about what's going to go on. I think a lot of people that are in uniform don't know what to think of it. Going to combat is one thing, but trying to deal with something you don't see is not like anything anybody, you know, they're not terrorists, they're not bad guys, they're not the Nazis. They're, Can't they're just, shoot it. You can't shoot it. You can't do ISR. You can't do intelligent preparation of the battlefield. You can't do any of that stuff and know what you're going to have happen because there's too many variables to how this thing gets spread, how it goes from one person to the next. Even though the mortality rate is, I think, about 1.815% in the U.S., a lot of that is because we haven't found the people that have it. So we just don't know. We just don't. And I think. One of the things that people don't understand, because it's such a historic event, we really don't entrust ourselves to read and learn from history. And that's something that that we really don't do. I mean, we, you know, everybody takes history a different way and history is written by the winners and, you know, all the different analogies you've heard about history. But if you read a couple books on the Spanish flu, you figure out that more people more military members died from the Spanish flu than died in World War I. I mean, if you look at the total numbers. And people don't realize how 
virulent it was the military-aged people was who it affected the most. Well, and they're all in a group. I mean, you know, you look at, you can't take and say, okay, I want you to attack that hill. But, oh, by the way, stay 10 feet apart. Right. Not going to happen. No more, no more than six of you in a room. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That it's very hard. And that's why I've kind of found a niche in the, the whole defense support civil authority. So how do we deal with hurricanes, floods, tornadoes, civil disturbance, you know, all that, that is a mission set that is, fraught with authorities, fraught with legalities, fraught with acts like posse comitatus. What's a Title 10 active duty soldier? What can they do versus a, a Title 10 reserve soldier? What, what's mm-hmm. a Title 2 National Guard? What can they do or not do law enforcement wise? So all those things, we don't know enough about it because we have to concentrate on war fighting because mm-hmm. that's our number one mission is, is fight and win ground combat in coalition and joint operations. But this whole virus is unlike anything many people have dealt with in their lifetime. And because we don't have many people from 1918 that are still alive, virtually nobody, it's a forgotten memory for all of us, except those that have talked to somebody that lived through it. People in the ages of 30 to 40 virtually have no idea. You know, they heard about the 2009 pandemic, but they don't really know what that is. You know, from my memory in 09, the market had crashed in 08 and 09, and that was front and center. And the 2009 virus was almost, I was going like, really? I, you know, and I never catch anything, so I didn't pay any attention to it right. at all. Yeah. I just think that the history, we don't do enough. You were asking earlier about education. I think being able to study what we've how we reacted in the past. And we talked briefly about the curve. In my opinion, because this is such a unique, called a black swan if you want to, or or whatever, once in a hundred year pandemic. But in my opinion, it is so unique and so different. We're making decisions now we should have made two weeks ago. And that's at every level. It's the learning uh, curve, isn't it? I mean, it is. Here's the other part that I try to concentrate constantly on my students and and my peers is you got to be creative. Thinking about bad things or things that are possible is not a pessimist. You got to think of the problem. What is the problem? I mean, that's the thing. Fundamentally Mm -hmm. I've been asked, you know, for 30 some years of federal service, military and civilian, what's the problem? Well, the problem is this. Well, there are different problems all over the place that deal with this virus. But the problem that's front and center is whatever you have to deal with every day. Are you self-isolating because you got exposed to somebody? Or are you worried about taking your kids to a daycare center? Or are you worried about going out to get groceries and getting to a civil disturbance with somebody over toilet paper or whatever? There's different problems for different people. And I think that uh, one of the issues that is, is so unique is some of the things we should have been doing two weeks ago or a month ago we didn't. Thinking about telework, thinking about how are we going to deliver instruction a different way. One of the things that I think was bold locally was the governor of Kansas saying, okay, school's over. I mean, I told my son that a week ago and he didn't believe me. No, it's, it's over. I, I mean, I, I wasn't alive in 1918, but I can see the writing on the wall. Yep. It's over. We're, we're done. You're, you're not going to be running track this year. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. So, and I can't emphasize enough being creative and critical and innovative thinking about what's next. What, what is next? What, what are the possibilities? Because 
we constantly tell our students, you're going to have about 60 or 70% of the information. You got to make decisions. Well, no, I, I need more. No, you, you I don't. Mean, yeah, I, understand, I understand wanting more. Yeah, but you're not going to get it. You, you and if, go you, if you had more, and all of a sudden, how much more can you have before it's no longer Intel and it's data? Right. Or and, that it's not actionable anymore. It doesn't add to what, well, where do I go? Do I go down mm -hmm. left or right or the middle? It doesn't matter anymore because that extra 10% of data or information didn't help me. It just it filled in some of the gaps, filled in some of the blanks, but it didn't help me. Nice to know uh, versus need to know. Yeah. Right. Right. Uh, you know, I, I, think, I think about the opportunity versus risk. And you go amongst any of the difficulties that you have, and, you know, in any event, you kind of go, okay, I understand to the extent I can the risk. You go, where's the other side? Where's the opportunity? What can I do to manage the opportunity or manage the risk? How do I be smart right. about this? Right. And when you do like a strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats, a SWOT analysis of, of whatever, mm -hmm. I think if you look at the strengths here, the U.S. strengths include our infrastructure especially in the medical field, our weaknesses are probably our ability to act is probably a weakness because we don't know how fast to act. Well, it's also uh, political. Correct. I mean, you know, if, I, if the president could stand up and go, we're all going to do this, and then right. the party says it's an election year and go, no, I don't think so. Right. Yeah, right. so it's, it's that, yeah. that has a, and I guess that has more to do with it probably than if it was an election year. If it was, if it was, if this happened a year from now, there would be vastly different things that would be happening from the federal level, at least. But opportunities, like I said, I think opportunities in the future, as far as business is concerned, is there are certain sectors that I think are going to shrink and contract, but I think other sectors, streaming, service, service to your door, streaming to your door, the ability to do a lot more from your home, uh, because no matter how long this lasts, three weeks, three months, six months, nine months, people are going to get into some kind of rhythm. They're going to understand what they can and can't do. And they're going to take advantage of it because that's, that's something else we do. We take advantage of what we have. And the threats to finalize it are the biggest threat we have is going back to the way it was. Well, this is a once in a hundred years. We, we can go back to outsourcing our supply chains. We can go outsourcing our, you know, we don't need rare earth. We don't need whatever mm -hmm. strategic materials we have. We, we don't need that. We can get it from somewhere else. And I think going back, that's a that would be backward steps that probably is not a good uh, fiscal policy, much less future opportunities for businesses or the government or anybody, I think we're going to become more self-sufficient. We're going to become less dependent upon foreign trade partners, unless it's things like agriculture, steel, something that we produce that we want to make that we can get the world to buy. The question is, are we going to be able to sell all that or are we going to use it all ourselves? Yeah. And, you know, and I think that's a challenge. It was funny, you know, I was thinking of what's the intended ben or unintentional benefit of having less people on the roads, more people working from home. Well, one I saw where Netflix is going to reduce some of their service to Europe, so they take and make sure they can deliver. So they have right. a capacity. If 5G was here, I doubt that would be the issue. I saw where, what was it, Venice now? The canals are clear. They can actually Correct. see the fish in the canals. Yes. You know, the air pollution in many places. My commute to work is like, are you kidding? There isn't anybody out there but me, you know, right. kind of deal. Right. So I think there's some unintended benefits. You know, I, 
a lot of times what strikes me is people don't know what they don't know, like the strategic value of being food self-sufficient, the strategic value of our rivers actually run somewhere instead of the North Pole. Right. You know, they run south. You know, that we have big oceans on both sides, so we have friendly neighbors by and large. There's a right. lot of things that this country has that other countries don't. And it's really, I think a lot of the citizens just don't get it and, and don't pay attention to it. Correct. And I think some of that, I don't know societally if we will embrace some of that and some of that will be fostered and nourished and understood by people that are going to make policy decisions in the next five, 10, 20 years or not, are they going to remember, how are they going to remember this event or this long series of events? Mm-hmm. Are they going to remember it as we were fighting off an unseen enemy and we found some things that we need to do differently? Or is it going to be political finger pointing who did what wrong, when? Or are we going to go even further and say, well, this is all some nation states problem because they started it and it spread from them. So we're going to we're going to blame them for everything. I can see it going at different ways. I don't know which way right now. You know, it, if I was a nation state that had multiple issues like this come from my be- eating behaviors or agricultural behaviors, kind of note self, change that. Right. Quit doing that. You know, you're going to have to live without your bad suit. No kidding. But that's thousands of years of culture. I don't know how you do that with a yeah. light switch. I don't, I don't see that. Yeah. So for the for the folks, you know, I guess to wrap it up, because I've been quizzing you now for quite some time and taking advantage of your knowledge, which I really appreciate. You know, for the folks that are listening, your gut feel uh, based on what you've seen out there, what would you, you, you know, advice you might recommend to them and kind of your prognostication of what you see on the other side of when we're going to get to the other side? I think we're not near the crescendo. It's going to take another six to nine months, probably before this levels off. I think this is going to come back. I mm-hmm. think we need prepared for it to come back. It may come back in this form. It may come back in another form. I can see some civil unrest, probably in some of our major cities. I can see people going from hospital to hospital trying to get treatment for grandma or grandpa. Mm-hmm. And if we don't have uh, military, National Guard, or police presence at pharmacies, grocery stores, and hospitals, I can see those becoming places where confrontation could happen. I think that uh, markets are going to be uncertain continuously for the next couple of weeks. The Fed's going to pump trillions of dollars in to keep the market up. I hope some of that goes to small business owners. I hope that goes to some people like the restaurant and service industries that are just getting reduced. I don't know if we're going to go. We went to the HUD and said, okay, we're going to stop foreclosures and evictions, but are we going to do that nationwide? Because car payments and mortgages are the two largest things that people spend money on outside. Uh, outside student loan credit, debt. Yeah. Exactly. Credit cards or student loan debt. Mm-hmm. But I mean, houses and, apartments and and car payments or the it may come to the point where they got to somebody's got to step in and do something there because if we don't we're going to have large portions of our population are going to be unemployed it will be not a good time it, it will not be good i don't know if what we're doing right now is enough the last day or two and what's happened for the next two weeks 
I don't know if that's enough to stave this off. I know that many small businesses that are service sectors are not going to survive if mm-hmm. this is what we have this is what happens. They're either going to survive or they're going to have to modify, fundamentally change. Big box stores of whatever sort are going to go away because of things like Amazon and this that happen and say, hey, you can get whatever. I just order it online and I can get it in a day or two days. I think more and more that the social distancing is going to be, I think will promote the fact that people are going to be happy living where they are and doing what they can do in their homes, maybe outside, maybe not. But I think more and more it's we're going to we're going to have to have ways to getting food and supplies that are just basic household goods that I, I don't know if people are going to continue to go outside and do that if this gets really bad. You um, know, I wonder we've got the nursing home issue and challenge and risks. And, you know, and it's culturally acceptable in this country for elderly citizens to reside in a nursing home. I wonder if that's going to change. I think it may. I think it may. I don't know. I thought it was going to happen when you had the whole busload of them that I don't know how many of them died after Katrina when they were trying to get Mm -hmm. out of going to Houston and they had that big fire in that bus. And I don't know how many of them died on that bus because they were in the numbers that were left behind Mm because they couldn't get other nursing homes. But we didn't seem we didn't seem to change there. But that was like I like to say in my class, that was a regional event. Katrina was a regional event. Hurricane Sand, Superstorm Sandy was a regional event. Yeah. All these are regional or even state events. This is a national event. This is a global mm-hmm. event. So there are some differences with size and scale and scope that go yeah. along with that that I maybe will change some of the societal factors and how what we value and what we don't value in the future. The biggest thing about people, because I got a mom and dad that are back home and my dad's taking care of my mom. And they're in a high-risk group because of their age. But we move so much. Mm-hmm. Every move so much. Yeah, I'm ex-military. You're military. And you kind of go, where'd you live? And you go, yeah, I need a longer piece of paper. Right. But even our civilian population moves all the time. Yep. Uh, I think some of that may change. Some of that may stop. People are going to yeah. find opportunities where they are versus, well, I can get more, uh, more for my buck if I go here or there. They may take this time, six weeks, six months, whatever it is, and reevaluate where they are and, and move and might not be on the priority list anymore for just another job opportunity because I think do, job opportunities are going to change. Do you think that, that people's opinion, you know, like the buying something inexpensively and they're going to say, where was it manufactured? Do you think that will start to evidence itself after this event? I think so. I, I do think too. The whole cheap, the cheap China stuff is going to, really and i think name brand market share is gonna is probably going to suffer people like walmart are not going to be able to have 70 80 percent of their stuff from china it's not going to happen people are going to stop buying it well for whatever reason there might be 300 reasons one might be grandma died in that covid19 of of 2020 yeah i'm done we're not gonna be reliant yeah we're not going to buy anything from china yeah or it might be just the simple fact that we couldn't get medicine or we couldn't get, you know, bandages or whatever. Mm-hmm. And it were made in China because of what's happened with the supply chain. When it starts impacting electronics, that's when it will have met the tipping point, I think. 
I think it'll take a while, but I think some of these other products, I think people will change their mind about where they buy what in the future. Yeah, I was trying to think of all the knock-on effects of this. You know, does it change how, how people take in and in their religion going to church? Right. You know, there's some of the major churches that tried doing it anyways, and then there's some major churches went online. And you right. kind of go, so what does that mean to the mega church business? Right. You know, and like, like I said, I think all kinds, all those forms of social gatherings, you know, movies, churches, concerts, ball games, uh, sporting events. I, I think some, something's going to change with how they are, how they are distributed, how they are consumed, how they are managed. There may be some fundamental shifts and how we, how we take in outside activities like that. Have you had much interaction uh, with the FDA and their approval process for treatments? I have not. I'm quite aware. After the jungle was published, you know, we, we, we had these federal agencies that were born, USDA, Health and Human Services, and you have the FDA that's a subset of that. And if you look at the POTUS and who sits around the table, the big wigs sit around the table. So USDA and HHS sit around the table, but FDA is kind of in the pinochle gallery. Mm-hmm. Um, the problem is USDA governs and manages certain food products and the USDA manages other ones. And if you go through a book, Marion Nestle, who used to teach, she wrote a book, I think I got it here, Food Politics. Mm-hmm. It goes through how the food industry runs how nutrition and how it's managed how it's inspected and she has a a page in here it talks about just the insane what what gets managed by the fda and what gets managed by usda and it's insane if the average american citizen understood that because it doesn't make any sense Mm -hmm. Uh, i can see some some changes because of that maybe this will be another jungle that actually changes some of the ways we manage drugs which may in effect change the way we manage food but i know that and i can't find it right now but i know that those federal institutions are going to change well i, I think about it if you had a pill that was really good for the blue thing over here and all of a sudden you have a red thing arrive and that pill would solve the red thing problem and right because fda didn't approve it for the alternative deal i think that's going to change right quickly i think the double blind studies that take six to eight years to finish that incrementally change somebody's lifespan or ability to confront a certain disease are going to go by the wayside. I mean, we put the genome genome for this thing up on the, up in the cloud in 24 hours. I mean, well, yeah. And was it uh, up in Oak Ridge? They started looking on the supercomputer, what drugs work on this type of event and they pushed it out across the scientific community. Right. And, and some of that, you know, there's been some side things, panelins and AIDS and some of the other things that weren't peer reviewed and, you know, mm-hmm. came out in the public. And that's where I say where, where information is being weaponized by certain, especially in the political arena, taking things that aren't scientifically based or were not peer reviewed and then, you know, thrusting them out and saying, oh, well, mm-hmm. this is where it came from. No, no, it's not. It's science is this is a mammal based disease. It didn't come from some lizard didn't come from a snake it's a mammal based disease so i think i think fda usda gypsa 
Health and Human Services, some of those federal agencies are going to change, change their focus. Uh, I think national stockpiles of certain things are going to change. We're going to be able to prevent maybe the extent of the impact of diseases in the future based on the fact we have simple things because ventilators, oxygen, hospital beds, and healthcare providers, that's the four things you need to have no matter what it is. We used to have a strategic merchant marine, right? And even right. World War II. And, you know, you think about, I was thinking the other day, we have all these cruise ships that are idled, right? And we're right. supposed to have all of this overflow from patients on right. coastal cities. Why wouldn't you move a cruise ship off a coastal city? And that's why Mercy and Comfort, the two Navy mm-hmm. ships, are going to California yeah. and New York because yeah. there's a thousand beds on those, each one of those. So yeah. they're going to the right places, but that's it. That's our strategic yeah. reserve. I mean, we have some mobile hospitals in the reserves, Title 10, Comp of 3, your, your U.S. Army Reserve, that they're going to they're gonna probably pull out ventilators, probably health care providers to supplement what we're doing. They're going to go to the VA. And their fourth pillar is helping in times of disaster with, mm-hmm. you know, hospital beds, ventilators, oxygen, and healthcare workers. But yeah, we do have strategic reserves in craft, the Civil Reserve Air Fleet. We have a very segmented, proportional, structured way. And the last time we did it of any note was in Desert Storm, where we said, hey, civilian airlines, you will do this and we'll mm-hmm. pay you, but we're going to use you for our travel. But in times of need, these are segmented, you know, one, two, three, four call-ups, and we're going to need your planes to move troops. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't have that of the same magnitude in the healthcare field. We have some of that, but not, we don't have the, and that's some of the Defense Production Act where we've, we've started coming up with some of that, but it's not set up the way we do with, with, with craft, which I think probably is a model that somebody hopefully will be smart enough in the federal government to come up with, hey, maybe we should have this with providers, both private and public, where we ask them to do these types of things and a national disaster is ordered or or called. I think about, you know, how the country usually works when they get tasks significantly. You know, 2008 was a time frame and there's been others and the country really seems to take the best and brightest, get really busy. And there are solutions that come from it. I hate for this to be the catalyst. You know, 9-11 was certainly a catalyst for many changes. You know, right. and I think, I suspect this thing will be seen as a tipping point as well. Right. And hopefully some of the mistakes of 9-11 post political decisions that we made, where we went, what we did, how we went, can be learned so that this time we don't make some of the same mistakes. Yeah, one would like to think so, huh? Maybe we'll, we'll make a new mistake, not just the old ones, right? Right. Exactly. <laughs> so something new. Well, Sean, exactly. I, I, this has been really interesting and fascinating, and I really appreciate you sharing your perspective and, and insights. It's been really good and timely. You're quite welcome. I appreciate the opportunity. And, and I love the accent. And, <laughs> I, haven't, you know. I haven't lost it in, in all my 20-plus years, plus another 20 out here. I still have a little Virginia twang in, in there. And, the, you know, the you mentioned Camp Funston and the Spanish flu. I actually yes. spent a memorable summer in Camp Funston, personally. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Lovely spot. It is. And old barracks in Fort Riley. Yep. Yeah. So, in any case, I appreciate it so much. 
And it, right. by the way, before I forget, if people wanted to reach out to you directly, how would they find you? I'm going to, I'm setting up a running blind YouTube channel. I'm in the middle of doing that. Right. And also contact me at uh, my Gmail account, just O'Shawn Cup. All one word, no dashes, no dots. Um, and you're on LinkedIn. As well. And I'm on LinkedIn. That is probably the easiest way to find me is on LinkedIn. And the Running Blind uh, YouTube channel will be up soon. And I'll be doing some other uh, videos probably in this area that crosses a bunch of different uh, sectors. It's not just focus on biosecurity or food or defense. It's kind of the intersection of all those and things that we've talked about in the okay. last period of time. Well, I appreciate it and uh, look forward to staying in touch. And maybe when we get a little ways down the road, we'll circle back and go, well, what did we get right and what did we miss? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Sounds like a plan. Thanks so much. Right. Thank you.